Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Well, I've got a new problem. My, my grandson, who doesn't want nothing to do with me, wants me to hold him all the time now. <laughs> I'm, I'm not that kind of grandfather. <laughs> no. Oh, he has finally decided that I am worthy of his affection. As long as there's candy somewhere in the vicinity. Generally, whenever he sees me, he comes to me. Thursday evening, we went out to Step and Rolls uh, and uh, visited a little bit, and he just was alternating between me and Grandma. I'm pretty sure he likes Grandma better than me still, but uh, we're working on that. Family's a great blessing, no doubt about that. I can still remember... I have kind of a visual image of my wife after two or three years of, of marriage saying something like, don't you think it's time to start a family? And I thought, no, I don't think so. <laughs> really? She was right. We had a happy little man and a couple of beautiful girls, and now we have our own clan, including a little man named Titus who smiles and reaches out to be picked up when he sees me. Family is a great blessing. There's no doubt about that. Family is a great blessing. Family is a great blessing from God, but it's also a great responsibility before God for the Christian, for the Christian who would be truly devoted to Christ. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is about. It's about saying, Hey, family is a great blessing, but God is the one who created it, and he has some very definitive ideas about what ought to happen in your family. The church in Corinth was struggling to know God's blessing in their families, to know God's blessing in the use of their sexuality. And so they sent some questions to the Apostle Paul, and they said, Paul, we're trying to figure this thing out. And they sent him some questions, and he sent them back some answers. And this chapter contains a number of of absolute truths. But today we're going to come into a section which has one absolute principle and a whole bunch of flexible concepts that need to be worked out. And that, that, that absolute principle is this. Christians must consider how life choices impact our ability to serve Christ, including marriage. In other words, there might be times when we ought to choose not to marry so that we can serve the Lord. There might be times when we ought to choose to marry so that we can serve the Lord. And the passage we're going to consider today right in the middle of chapter 7 is going to guide us to think about that. Starting in verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose therefore that this is good because the because I suppose therefore that it is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. 
so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman carries about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Look at that verse 35 again. He said, I'm not trying to control you, but I want you to be able to serve the Lord without distraction. Christians must consider how life choices impact their ability to serve Christ, including marriage. Life choices can impinge on our ability to serve Christ. And the Apostle Paul is going to talk about how the decision to marry or not to marry affects that in particular. The first thing we need to understand about this passage is the perspective of this truth, which is mature wisdom. Okay? Again, the Apostle Paul, right up front, he says, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I'm going to give a judgment. He says, this is not a commandment. And I'm going to give my judgment. Look at verse 26. He says, I suppose, therefore. Now, when we say that sentence, it's really kind of flexible and variable. Well, I suppose, you know, whatever. That's not best translation. The best translation would be, I have given this some thought, and here is my, here is my conclusion after thinking about it. Here is what I suppose to be the best way to bring all of these pieces of wisdom together. The word suppose means a judgment based on a consideration of the facts. Look at verse 28. Um, in, in verse 27, he says you should live this way. He says, now, but if you make the choice to marry, it's not a sin. He's not saying there is, this is the absolute thing or this is the absolute thing. He said there are some variables to be considered. Look at verse 35. I'm not trying to put a leash on you. I am not trying to, the NIV says, I'm not trying to restrict you. In other words, this is not a hard and fast rule. There is, a, there is some wisdom being shared. The Apostle Paul is giving divinely sanctioned advice. We need to think real hard about when we give advice, whether it's divinely sanctioned or just our own opinion. The Apostle Paul, this is Scripture, so God wants us to hear it. God wants us to consider what the Apostle Paul thought about this situation, if you will. Divinely sanctioned advice that's based on a series of biblical truths and based on experiential realities which he had gained in his years with Christ. He's encouraging the believers in Corinth to thoughtfully consider his conclusion about how to be undistracted in serving Christ. Look at verse 25. 
he said, um, there's no commandment from the Lord, but I'm going to give a judgment. And here's the qualification of why he's able to give a judgment. He is one in whom the Lord, in his mercy, has made trustworthy. That's a way to say that he was a credible servant of God. Think about it this way. From what you know about the Apostle Paul, if he stumbled into the First Baptist Church one Sunday morning, and uh, during the greeting time, you said, well, hi, I'm, uh, I'm Dave. What's your name? My name's Paul. Uh, used to be Saul of Tarsus. We'd go, oh, my goodness, we have to have you share with the church. You're Paul. You're the Apostle Paul. And if he got up here and said, well, I'd like to share with you, uh, you know, um, and, and we'd say, this is the condition of our country. What do you think we ought to do right now? And he would give, an, a, he would give a, a sermon. He would, he would bring some things together. Do you think we ought to consider his opinion? Or would you go, what do you know? Okay, that's, that's an easy decision, isn't it? I mean, it should be. You should be thinking, well, this guy was really wise. Obviously, God enabled him to write scripture. He was an apostle. He started churches. He led people to the Lord. This guy is a mature, credible servant of God. His perspective ought to have some value. That's exactly what God was saying in Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, if we looked at the whole balance of truth in the New Testament in regard to you and relating to those in spiritual leadership and so on, we would come up with several truths. One of them would be this. Someday when you die, you're going to answer to God for how you lived your life. I am not going to answer to God for how you lived your life. But I am going to answer to God for how I taught you his word. And I am going to answer to God for how I encouraged you to follow his word. Okay, so you will stand or fall before God by the choices that you've made. And yet within that system where there is no authority, there, you know, I don't, I don't get to tell you what to do because I'm the pastor. But even though there's no authority, what God says is you should listen to people who are spiritually mature, those people who have taught the word of God to you, considering the outcome of their conduct. The greatest burden I have as a pastor is to live a godly life. And I don't say it's a burden because I don't want to do it. It's a burden because if I falter, it has an impact on other people. But to whatever extent you can see faithfulness in my life and in the life of our other elders, that needs to be a factor in which you say, I should listen to their perspective on spiritual issues in my life because of the quality of their life. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing with the Corinthians. He was saying, Corinthians, God has made me trustworthy in, in the ministry. You should listen to this perspective. There is a, a, an important question, I think, to ask, and that's this. When do we need the counsel of those who are more mature in Christ? It's when the word doesn't speak in absolute ways about the concerns of life. In other words, you don't need me when you are 
trying to figure out whether you should lie or tell the truth. Okay? Uh, Pastor Dave, I, I, I'd like to counsel with you a little bit. I, my boss has told me to lie on the forms, and I'm just not sure what I should do. Uh, we don't need to spend any time together. You just do the right thing. Okay? It's an, okay, and I'm not making light of that. I know that's a hard situation because you might lose your job. I get that. We might have to talk about that, whether or not you're willing to lose your job in order to be honest. But it's honesty. It's right there. Your parents are encouraging you to marry an unbeliever because she or he comes from a wealthy family. The response should be, no, it's wrong. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to marry an unbeliever. God says it's wrong. Verse 39 right here, it's clear. It's crystal clear. But what the Apostle Paul is talking about is an issue that's not black and white in the Scripture. He says, when you're trying to know whether or not to marry and which believer to marry, then you're in a sphere of decision-making that requires the wise application of many biblical principles and can benefit from the perspective of many years in the Lord. That's what this little verse is about. Where there is no counsel, the people fall but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But only if those counselors are using God's word. That, that is the caveat that's just got to be true. So the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a spiritually mature guy, and I'm giving you some things to think about. And we know that it was good advice because it's, it's included in the scripture. Who are the people that are being addressed? When you look at verse 25 and it says virgins right up front, you tend to think, what? The word virgin there is essentially a way to say an unmarried, sexually pure young woman. Now, the, this word in Greek was also used of, uh, of young men who were unmarried and sexually pure or uh, whatever, you know, a virgin, if you will. Um, it was also used of them. Later in the text, um, he, he makes mention of men. He makes mention of women. And so there's a broad address to this. There is a broad address to this passage. Look at verse 25. He, he, he uses the word virgin. Look at the verse 26. I suppose, therefore, it's good because of the present distress for a man to remain as he is. Uh, verse uh, 27, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? So clearly he's talking to men there. Um, verse 28, uh, 29, he's uh, talking to men. And so on, he's going back and forth. My point is this. The primary audience for this passage are those who are single and contemplating marriage. Okay, that's obvious. But... The prime truth he's going to get to, verse 35, has application to everybody. And so hang in there as we work through this passage. The prime advice, the prime advice that he offers is this. Uh, look at verse 26. I suppose, therefore, it is my considered opinion that it is good because of the present distress for a man to remain as he is. If you're bound to a wife, don't seek to be loosed. If you're loose, don't seek a wife. The present distress. Paul wasn't specific. 
He didn't use the word persecution, but it would seem that that is the most likely thing he is speaking of, the persecution of Christians. Jesus predicted the persecution of Christians. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. There were two aspects to the persecution of Christians, two, two eras, if you will. The first was that by Jewish leadership. The Apostle Paul was pursued by those who were Jewish and didn't want him promoting the Christian religion. Later, the big persecution that we tend to think of with Christians in that era was done by Nero, who you know, put Christians in the Colosseum with the, with the uh, wild lions and all of those kinds of things that we think about in the extreme forms of persecution that Christians encountered. The important thing is that Jesus said, look, this is going to happen. The world hates you because the ruler of the world hates you. And so this is going to happen. And of course it happened to the Apostle Paul. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitude, they stoned him and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. What in the world would that have been like? And, and if we were to read the whole text, you know, in verse 18, what was what almost happened right before he got stoned? The people were going to worship him because he'd done some miracles and they thought, oh, this is the guy, this is some God of our culture and they're going to worship him. He said, no, 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 don't worship him. And in runs these uh, Jewish folks who hated what he was preaching and they stirred up the crowd and they went from worshiping to stoning I've never been hit with a stone bigger than the pebbles little kids throw at each other once in a while. Back in the day when you could do that, throw, you know, in eastern Washington, we dug holes in the ground and, and threw dirt clods at each other from our forts, you know. Now that's a crime, you know. <laughs> Man, I'd have been in jail, I'm telling you what, you know. I don't know what it's like to be stoned. I don't know what it's like to be you know, people think, well, he's dead. What would that have been like for Paul? And then pretty soon they, they get around, you know, they must have just said, well, let's get these stones off of him. Let's go bury him. And they uncovered him and they stood around. Maybe they prayed. And next thing you know, he stands up and goes, well, where are we going next? <laughs> Man, wow, you talk about a hero. Talk about a guy who won't give up. Can you imagine what that phone call home would have been like if he had a cell phone and a wife? See, that's what he's talking about. He said, I suppose that because of the current distress, you that are single might be better off to stay single. Um, these were tough days for Christians. Um, when Paul... Look at verse 29. I say therefore, brethren, the time is short. He's, uh, he's not so much saying that the days were shortened as that he, the word that's used there, it, it means to kind of squeeze things together, to be contracted, to be compressed. I think he was trying to say that the days were hard days. When I was a boy, 
living in eastern Washington in the summer, we literally went out and dug holes in the dirt and uh, threw dirt clods at each other. And I took my dog and we walked through the sagebrush and uh, took my BB gun and shot at anything that moved. That's a crime now, too. You know, go home, raid the cupboard, find what I can, get on my bike, ride around town. Summertime and the living is easy. Yeah, that was my life. The Apostle Paul says, these days ain't them days. These are, these are days that have been compressed and contracted and pushed together. These are tough days. Those of us who have lived a while know the difference between the easy days and the tough days. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, people in Corinth, one of the big things you ought to consider as you think about marriage and serving the Lord Not just thinking about marriage, but marriage and serving the Lord, because every Christian needs to be thinking about serving the Lord in their life. As you think about marriage and serving the Lord, you need to be thinking about the fact that these are tough days. These are tough days. And so because they're tough days, there is a decision that has to be made. What spiritual choices will I make in the face of difficulty? What spiritual choices will I make in the face of difficulty? Look at verse 28. If you do marry, you haven't sinned. Again, he's saying this is not wrong to choose to marry. If a virgin marries, if a single young woman marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, you will have trouble in the flesh or in the physical life. You will have trouble. And I want to spare you. I want to minimize the trouble you're going to have. But this is what I'm saying, brothers, The time has been shortened, contracted. These are hard days so that even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep should be as those who do not weep. Those who rejoice as those who did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use this world as not misusing this world. Paul said there are hard choices to make in these difficult days of persecution. Okay? And, and he said, if you are married, there is a hard choice to make in regard to the priority you place on your wife. Now, God clearly says that a husband and wife have to make a priority of their relationship. He said it earlier in this chapter. He says it in other places. So don't get the idea that the Apostle Paul is saying, now, when difficulty comes, you should abandon your wife. He's not saying that. He's saying there will be hard choices to make. The tone of this passage would lead to an example like this. If, because of the persecution of Christians, you and your wife are taken into custody and the oppressors tell one of you, deny your Christian faith or we'll kill your spouse, in that moment, an unmarried man or woman would be free to claim Christ and die. But in that moment, the married believer would be under tremendous conflict knowing that their refusal to deny Christ would result in the death of their spouse, but to choose their spouse means to deny their Savior? Who can choose? The Apostle Paul said, 
If you marry, there's going to come a day when you're going to think, boy, it would be better today if I wasn't married. And it's not because you don't love your wife or husband. It's because of the present distress. He talks about the loss of a loved one. Verse 30, he said, those who weep as though they did not weep. In a time of persecution, you might lose a loved one to death or to imprisonment. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the grief of the righteous. But if you allow grief to dominate your life, you're going to have to stop serving Christ. He says these difficulties are going to come, and even though you might want to invest in grieving, and believe me, in this day, they invested in grieving in a big way. He said, you're not going to be able to do that talked about joy and happiness god gives us freely all things to enjoy james tells us but even in a time of difficulty there are moments of joy but the desire for joy can push us to change our priorities god asks us to live for him not to live for the pleasures of life and so as as a person would look forward they say boy what is going to be the best choice for my life the value of material possessions in verse 30 he says Those who buy as though they did not possess. He said, you're going to have to approach material possessions as though not extremely important. You're going to have to let go of those things. And then he talks about the connection to the world in verse 31. He said, we are connected to the world, but we cannot love the world. We We cannot cling to the world. Now listen to the quote from a couple, from, uh, from John MacArthur. In fact, did I put it on here? I did. I think he brings this whole passage together in a great thought. Human relationships, these five things that we just mentioned, human relationships, emotions, possessions, and pleasures become sinful when they dominate thought and behavior, and especially when they detract us from the Lord's work. We should not overvalue these things knowing that they are passing away. Again, and and I like the way that, that John MacArthur put it here, there's nothing wrong with having a loved one. There's nothing wrong with joy. There's nothing wrong with grieving a loved one who dies. There's nothing wrong with material possessions. There's nothing wrong with living in the world that's around us But what Paul is telling to the Corinthians is realize there are some significant hardships coming which will present hard choices if you are married down the road. Because of that, he says, you who are single should proceed very carefully with marriage plans. One of the great takeaways, you know, I mean, Frankly, some of you are sitting there now saying, well, we're not being persecuted, so this doesn't apply to me. Uh, Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord you don't live in Egypt where the Coptic Christians literally lost their heads to the ISIS oppressors. But, but, it does apply to us this way. Thinking very carefully about how marriage and potential future conditions will affect my ability to serve the Lord. 
You see, that's what he's really getting to, is the priority of life. Look at verse 35. I want you to serve the Lord without distraction. I tell you, that's one of the most challenging verses probably in the New Testament. To look at life and say, do I serve the Lord without distraction? Boy, I don't. I got a lot of distractions. Verses like this are the kinds of verses that, the kind of thoughts that need to come to bear here. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, we all, if you've been in church any length of time, you probably know that verse. Um, if I were to ask you, what are we supposed to be trying to do in life? You say, you say we're, we're supposed to glorify God. And I, I couldn't agree more. But the question is, do we consider that verse before we get married Or do we get married and get our nest all feathered and get all squared away and then say, okay, God, what can I do for you here? The Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians saying, you need to consider how you can serve the Lord without distraction before you enter into marriage. Because what he's going to say is, it, it might be the best thing for you not to marry Oh man, we don't want to hear that, do we? God wants me to be single? Ooh, that's a tough one. This verse is one of those kinds of verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. How can you serve the Lord without distraction? And then, of course, this other familiar verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek ye First, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is taking all these commands to a level we don't often think about. Our tendency is to assume that the normal forms of life in our society are givens. We pursue those norms and then we dedicate them to the Lord as best we can. For instance, of course I'm going to go to college and get a good paying job. What else am I supposed to do? Now, I'm glad my kids are self-supporting, okay? I'm not against that. I'm glad my kids all went to, to some college at least. Some of them graduated. I'm doing a doctoral program now. I'm not against higher education. You understand that. But our society says, of course you do this. Of course you do this. And Christians often flow along in that cycle Because they're going, well, are you telling me I should think about serving the Lord before everything? Of course I'm going to get married. Of course I'm going to own a a home and a couple of cars. Of course I'm going to have a child or two or three or however many the Lord blesses me with. And yet what Paul is saying here is so revolutionary For the evangelical world today, he's saying maybe you shouldn't get married. Specifically so you can dedicate your life to serving the Lord. Look at um, at verse uh, 34. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman 
cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy in both body and spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how to please her husband. Now he's, you know, as I thought about that, I thought, well, that's a, that's a great text to preach to single people. Um, although the way it reads, if you just take it on face value, it says every single person is wholly devoted to the Lord. I won't ask you to raise your hands here today, single people. <laughs> when I was a single person, there was certainly a time when I was not wholly devoted to the Lord. What he's saying is this. The single person is free from the, the normal cares and concerns of married life. Okay? And so they have the potential, and the word holy there means dedicated or set apart, they have the potential to set themselves apart completely to the Lord's work. And he says the married person has to care for the husband, the wife, there are normal duties of life. Um, Harry Ironside, famous preacher of years ago, put it this way, in other words... We are not to allow any temporal relationship or any human occupation to hinder our fellowship with God or our obedience to his will. Nothing between my soul and the Savior Habits of life, though harmless they seem, must not my heart from him e'er sever. He is my all, there's nothing between, nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear, let nothing between. The Apostle Paul in verse 35 says, I want you to be free of, literally free of anxiety. It's the same word in Philippians 4, 6. Uh, be anxious for nothing. You know, he could have said care for nothing, but it doesn't sound right in our English. Be anxious for nothing. He says, I want you to be free of anxiety. I want you to be able to serve the Lord without a distraction, without anything pulling you in a different direction. Now, what Paul really says here in this passage is two things. He says, number one, he said, for some people to be single just distracts them because they are so desirous of relationship and, and sexual fulfillment that they need that relationship to settle down and to settle into serving God. I count myself in that number. He said, but perhaps God would gift you to stay single and devote yourself to him. The application for us today is to say, I need to think about it. I just need to open myself up to what God wants to do in my life. And taking this whole passage on balance, we come up with a statement like this. Marriage should only be undertaken with the priority of Christ first. Is that Jesus calling? 
Whatever he's got to say, we're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Marriage should only be undertaken with the priority of Christ first. Okay, Jesus, I'm sorry. I must be saying something wrong. (laughs) We'll just wait for a minute. There we go. Now, what Paul also says is this in this passage, and it's just as important to remember. If you are married, the solution is not to divorce, but to put Christ first together. Again, from Harry Ironside, he means that the one thing to live for is not your own happiness as a husband and wife, but in but in you are united, but as you are united in the Lord, see that your great business is to live for him. What is a husband? and wife or in a family look like when they're committed to Christ? I would just offer you a few thoughts. I think you know what some of these should be, but there is an absolute commitment to living by God's wisdom in the Bible, not the ever-changing ideas of our society. You want to be a family who is serving the Lord without distraction? Be committed to God's word. There is a recognition of God's definition of the roles in the family, of leadership, of submission, of obedience. There's a high value on connection and service to the body of Christ. I think, you know, we look at the Corinthians and we go, wow, aren't we thankful we aren't living in a time of persecution? Yes, we are. Instead, we're living in a time where the family has sort of been placed up on the altar and we worship at the altar of family. And the children are even on a higher altar and, well, we, whatever, we got to do all these things for them. Rather than saying, how should our family be serving the Lord? What are the things our family should be doing? As individuals, what should we be doing There is a concern in a family that's, wor- that's serving God together, that's serving without distraction. There's a concern for the unsaved souls of the world. There's a use of money that reflects God's priorities in the ministry. I saw a picture of two boys uh, in the paper here. You probably saw it. I think it was on the front cover of the paper one day this week. They had the junior seat of ski race last week, and apparently one of the legs of the race is a three-legged race. And here's these, these two boys, they're racing together, and uh, they had a, they had a, their name of their team was Brothers from Another Mother. And, uh, and, I, and I thought, you know, here, here's two guys, they're, they're in sync, they're walking in sync together. I thought, that's a great image of a husband and wife in sync together with Christ, trying to serve Christ together because again, the, the one unmovable truth of this passage is, I want you to serve the Lord without distraction. The pleasure of sacrifice. Why should I do this? Why should I, as a single person, look at marriage and say, maybe I should stay single and devote my whole life to the Lord? 
Why should I as a married person turn from from maybe over-prioritizing my family and saying, I have got to serve God better. We have got to come together. Why should I do that? Um, It's not hard for me to imagine somebody hearing these words today saying, how can God ask me to put marriage and family on hold in order to serve him? How can God ask me to prioritize him above my family? Well, I think the answer is found in this verse that we already looked at once. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What what does this phrase mean, the mercies of God? It's, It's a summary way to say all that God has done to bring you to faith in Christ. Um, If I was to... uh, To look at it in the big picture, I'd say, what's it worth to know that that Christ has paid for your sin and that because of that, you're going to heaven someday? How valuable is that? Yeah, I know that's really valuable, but oh, you're asking me to give up this huge piece of my life. Yeah, I'm not asking you to give up anything. God's mercy is his choice to not hold your sin against you, but to forgive you based on the sacrifice of Christ. What's that worth? One of the ways that television mothers, you know, in a a sitcom type show, will manipulate their children is to remind them over and over of how many hours of hard labor they had. I labored for, you know, and... And then the child has to, has to get into line. You know, the line goes something like this. I brought you into this world. You owe me. Yeah. I, I've never heard a woman actually do that in real life, but I'm sure it's based on reality somewhere. God has kept you out of hell and given you heaven. You owe him. I owe him. When we're tempted to give up on, on the godly life, when we're tempted to, to, to make a quick path to a decision like marriage or sexuality or something else, we have to say, wait a minute, Jesus went, the, went farther than imaginable for me. I cannot do anything but patiently walk with the Lord day by day and wait on him for whatever blessing he's going to give me. We need to love God first and best As the song the choir sang last week says, because he loved me, because he loved me. We love God because he loved us. There's another reason, though, to put God first in all of your life, and and frankly, it's it's the right here and now reason. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. When we think of how to be happy, we tend to think of a certain series of things that we want in life. Um, I'm getting ready to take a couple of trips over the next couple months, and uh, I wanted to get a smaller suitcase. Now, I have, a, I have the carry-on side of the suitcase, but uh, that's not big enough for two weeks in a foreign country. And then I have the big size of suitcase, which is perfect if you're going to go visit missionaries and take them a bunch of stuff. But I needed something in the middle. You know, I needed that just right, that Goldilocks suitcase. 
and I was at a store that sells extremely expensive suitcases, and, and one of my kids had asked me what I want for my birthday, so I took my phone and I snapped a picture of the price list, you know, and, 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 and the just right suitcase was like $600 or some ridiculous thing, you know. I'll be happy when I get the $600 just right suitcase, you know. So, uh, so I got a just right suitcase of that same brand, but it didn't cost $600 in the mail this week. So I'm happy. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm happy for one day. I took a picture of it and put it on Facebook. Look at my new suitcase. I did. You think I'm going to put a picture of my kids on Facebook? <laughs> think, Pastor Dave, that's a stupid thing to be happy about. Yeah, it is. It's just as stupid as all the other things in life. I've got to get this, and I've got to get that, and I've got to fix this, and I've got to fix that, and, and when this happens and that happens, then I'm going to be happy. No, because there will be some other thing. And when you get that thing, there will be some other thing. God has a path to joy, and that path is obedience to the word of Christ. Now, frankly, it's miraculous, because you should not be happy unless you have all the stuff you want. I mean, the way our human minds think, why should I be happy if I don't have all that stuff? You can be happy without anything because God himself is going to send the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of joy in your life. And for that matter, there are things that God's obedience to God's word will bring that bring joy that's beyond anything we can create. Jesus said, do you want to be joyful? Do you want to have joy that's full? Then obey me. Now, frankly, the life of righteousness always presents itself as a sacrifice. Well, I can see that you know, today, the sacrifice, if you're a single person here today, one of the sacrifices that is presenting itself is, am I willing to put my, my married life on hold if God calls me to that in order to serve him better? Am I willing to just, in fact, am I willing to just set that aside and just serve God and, and do whatever he's wanting me to do? And if he wants me to get married, he'll just bring somebody along. Am I willing to make that sacrifice? There's always a sacrifice in righteousness. But there's always a joy because that's what God is doing. How does obeying Christ bring joy? Well, first and foremost, when we walk in righteousness, we don't have the guilt of sin. Do you like feeling guilty? Boy, I don't. Whether it's a sin against man or a sin against God, I don't like feeling guilty. When we walk in righteousness, we don't have the guilt of sin. When we walk in righteousness, we raise a family who walks in righteousness, and that yields an increasing amount of peace in life. How much joy do you suppose I have seeing my grandchildren here every week, and not just because they're here? Sure, that's fun. But what's really great is they are learning about the Lord every week. And as I've seen with other people's children, the time comes when they make that decision for Christ. 
they're growing up knowing the Lord. When I'm old and I won't be able to read, maybe they'll read the Bible to me and we'll talk about heaven and we'll rejoice together in all that's ahead and I won't care what kind of suitcase I have. Is that right? That's right. No suitcase going to heaven. But the joy of family in the Lord, that's worth the price of righteousness. Obeying Christ enables a husband and wife to stay together. How much is that joy worth as they live out God's commands? Obeying Christ gives a mom and dad wisdom to know how to raise their children And that's why this is just one of my key verses in life. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord is not something he just puts on your life. The blessing of the Lord is ours as we walk with him day by day, and we make those righteous choices. He blesses our lives. Real joy comes from following Christ, not from living for your family. Nobody knows what goes on in the mind of a toddler like my grandson Titus. But for some reason, he refused my gestures of love for a period of time. Now get this, he didn't know it, but he was missing out. At the very least, he was missing out on a bowl full of candy. He was also missing out on whatever fun we could have together. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that because I'm so perfect. I'm just saying I'm, there is relationship waiting to be had, and he's gone, I don't think so. I think I'll be better by myself. It's the same challenge with us and God. You can hold back your life from God, but while you do that, You're missing out on the relationship you could be having. You're missing out on the joy and the peace and the the blessing you could be having. Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in this life and the stuff of this life. Even when that stuff is is a family, we just want to focus on our family and on our husband and wife and, and on getting them and having them and keeping them and being with them and And you want us to focus on Christ and on serving him and allowing the family to be part of that great work that you're doing. Help us. Help us to know, those of us who are married, first of all, Father, help us to know how to to follow Christ together, how to live for Christ together, how to serve without distraction. For those who are single, Father, I just pray your guidance in their life. I certainly, in my human strength, I want them to know the blessing of marriage and family. But you might have something even greater for them. Father, will you make yourself known to all the single people that are here today? Will you help them to understand how to pursue the Christ life and how to wait on your timing for marriage and the family? And if there's some of them that you want to just be single for all of their life, will you give them grace for that and peace? And will you use them greatly? Father, we want to serve you. 
It's hard for us. Please help us today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.